The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, very good morning, everybody. You're watching the show they call Squawk Box with Jeffrey Cutmore, Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Asian stocks hold steady as retail and factory data out of China disappoints, uh, highlighting challenges for the country's post-COVID recovery picture. Uh, The United States, though, inching closer to a default as lawmakers dig in their heels ahead of budget talks at the White House later today. The House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, says there's still some way to go. I still think we're far apart. Um, it doesn't seem to be yet that they want it. Seems more like they want a default than a deal. Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Capital sells its shares in five of America's biggest banks amid the recent turmoil. But 13F filings show two major hedge funds snapping up stakes in regional lenders despite the volatility. The EU greenlights Microsoft's $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard, standing in contrast to the UK's denial of the deal. EU antitrust chief Margrethe Vestager tells CNBC exclusively the deal isn't a co- decision isn't a contradiction. We know each other. We have been discussing theories of harm, some degree uh, aligned. Now we have different uh, outcomes, but this is not something that comes between us uh, as uh, jurisdictions and as law enforcers. Our US colleagues will be speaking exclusively to Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella tomorrow. The French president Emmanuel Macron courts blue chip companies, uh, including Elon Musk at his Choose France summit, securing 13 billion euros in investment for the country. Meanwhile, Catch David Faber's sit down with the Tesla CEO in the early hours tomorrow. Chinese factory output and retail sales missed expectations in the month of April, suggesting the post-COVID recovery in the world's second largest economy is still uneven. Industrial output rose by 5.6%. That was higher than in March, but significantly lower than the near 11% increase analysts had expected. Retail sales marked their fastest rise since March 2021, but still came in below forecast with a gain of 18.4%. Wei Yao joins us now, a China economist at Sokgen. Thank you so much for joining us. Just looking at the numbers today, they were better than the prior month, but the expectations were so much higher, a very high bar to clear here. Was it a problem with the forecast or the data itself? Well, the, the, everyone forecasted uh, higher growth numbers, including us, because the base was just so low in last April when Shanghai went into a lockdown. So, so the data definitely are disappointing. Uh, I would think, you know, the biggest shocker is actually the industrial production, which basically implied a outright contraction in the month of April. Uh, the fixed asset investment is just sort of showing weakening momentum. The housing is a bit worrying that it, it, it looks increasingly like an L-shaped recovery. Um, the consumption, however, you know, it's a, it's a kind of two-speed recovery. The goods is a little bit, a bit of momentum, but the service is actually still pretty robust. 
to the drag here. It feels you've got an economy opening up just at a time when interest rates are moving higher and setting a, a very high standard for consumers and businesses at this point. Uh, a real hurdle for some of those consumption habits and also growth appetite for a lot of big corporates. What does that mean as we look at the, the drag from the international community on China as it's trying to get back into uh, a higher speed? Well, the, the the Chinese policy has been on a very different track from the rest of the world. Interest rates have been falling, actually still falling. Uh, the question increasingly is that are we seeing some structural shift in terms of Chinese households and the company's mindset? Are they losing animal, uh, animal spirits? Is this a structural issue? Is the confidence a structural problem? I think, you know, this is actually uh, a bigger problem than, you know, some data miss uh, in some months. Uh, Wei Yao, how do the authorities respond to this then? Because the data is starting to look a bit deflationary. We know the PBOC did start providing liquidity earlier on in the year. That seems to have washed out somewhat. Are we waiting on another bout of stimulus? Well, uh, looking at you know how, how quickly and how soon the, the recovery momentum is weakening, it's certainly quite worrying. It, it does argue, you know, for more policy support um, and a bit more decisive one. We can totally ask the question: Can another just ten basis point cut to any interest rate really helpful? If it's more structural, it's more deep rooted now. Um, should should they consider some more drastic fiscal uh, options, especially in terms of support uh, household? income. But unfortunately, we haven't seen any of, you know, meaningful signal yet from the policymakers. So that that creates an issue in itself, as in the longer they wait, the more entrenched, you know, this deleveraging mindset can be. The um, medium term ambition was to encourage domestic demand and move away from a model that was very much dependent on overseas business. Um, How's that going? the you know the short term and medium term is actually somewhat related in the sense that you have to revive the economy first you know revive the confidence first because even for medium term um, trajectory even if you want to look for a different model of uh, growth in terms of not relying so much on real estate you need people to be confident in that vision and in in, in other sectors too so I, I don't think we can really skip to the medium term meaning that you know the the fact that the the, the near term recovery is not strong could create a problem for the medium-term vision. Um, I have a longer-term question, and I think you're the exact person to answer this for me. The fear for many years has been that China wouldn't achieve the level of economic growth and societal wealth that it hoped to uh, during the period of rapid growth. So now, do we really need to start talking about the fact that China has reached the the, the concerned middle income trap that it never used those enormous growth years to get to the size of economy and size of wealth per person that it tried to. And now actually with an aging demographic, with the big easy gains behind it, has it reached that middle income trap? It is certainly uh, the point to ask that question. I mean, thanks for asking, which is, you know, they're looking at this trap. And it seems that uh, the progress is not great, as in, you know, they can really get out of this trap. Um, they're, they're, they need some policy changes and, and pushes to push the economy. I think it's not too late. It put, it's a bit too early to say they were definitely pulling the trap. We are at the point that they need to make some decision to make some changes to help the economy move beyond. But um, at the moment, we're not seeing enough. 
Weyel, we're going to say goodbye, but thank you so much for joining us and giving us some context on these numbers. Uh, Weyo, China economist for SockGen. Uh, moving on, what's that other big issue that we're all fixated on, or at least the markets? Well, West it Ham, is... West Ham winning the West Europe Ham winning... Yeah, oh, you mean the other thing, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you, a lot of traders from East End are thinking the same thing I'm as me. I'm sure they probably yeah, sorry. are. Carry on with the, the other, other issue. Though. Globally... Oh, yeah. The debt ceiling. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has repeated the country could default on its debt as early as June the 1st. Yellen warned lawmakers again that waiting until the last minute to suspend or increase the debt limit could cause serious harm to business and consumer confidence and might impact West Ham's chance, I'm sorry, and negatively impact the United States' credit rating. Her comments came as the White House and congressional leaders prepare to meet today at 3 p.m. local time to continue negotiations over lifting the debt ceiling. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said nothing had moved and that he was, quote, fearful about how talks are going. I still think it's far apart. Um, it doesn't seem to me yet that they want it. It just seems that they want to look like they're in a meeting, but they're not, they're not talking anything serious. And in the meantime, we just watched the CBO come out and say we're $100 billion further in debt. So, uh, it's more like they want a default than a deal. Meanwhile, West Ham manager David Moyes, uh, sorry, uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has hit out at the debt situation, but said he believes a deal can still be reached. Raising the debt ceiling without addressing why you're this much in debt is kind of stupid. And I think we're going to stop stupid and hopefully address why we're in debt when we raise the debt ceiling, because we've got to raise the debt ceiling to pay the credit card, but we also have to address how we're running up debt on the credit card, and I think we can do both, and I believe we will. Right, let's do some whale watching, shall we? Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Capital sold its position in five of America's biggest banks in the first quarter, according to regulatory filings. Bridgewater Capital exited its position in JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, whilst the hedge fund halved its exposure to Citicorp or Citigroup, I should say, these days. Uh, that comes in contrast to Greenlight Capital's David Einhorn, who snapped up shares of New York Community Bancorp and First Citizens amid the turmoil in regional lenders. Now, A13F filings from Scion Asset Management's Michael Burry uh, showed he also bet on regional lenders in the first quarter. Wasn't Michael Burry in the... Um, he yes, was, he was. yes, he was. He was yes, on he the, was. The, the big, the big short. Uh, yes, the he big was. The yeah. big short. Most amazing story. Uh, anyway, picking up shares in First Republic amongst other regional lenders. How fascinating all this is. Uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway took a position in Virginia-based lender Capital One during the first three months of the year. The firm's 13F showed Berkshire built a stake worth more than $950 million in the bank, which held up amid the wider volatility in the sector. Shares in Capital One jumped over 5% following the disclosure of the stake. Tech stocks were also in focus for hedge funds. Over the first quarter, with Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Capital Management revealing a new $1 billion bet on Alphabet, having bought more than 1 million shares of the tech giant amid excitement around artificial intelligence. David Tepper's Apollosa Hedge Fund uh, raised its stake in Uber by 390%, making the ride-sharing app its third largest holding. Tepper also hiked 
uh, his stakes in both Amazon and Alphabet. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Uh, and for plenty more on the uh, 13F filings and to see what moves Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway made in the first quarter, why don't you check out our premium service, CNBC Pro. The former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank has apologised for the collapse of the lender in prepared testimony ahead of an appearance at the Senate Banking Committee later on today. Greg Becker also hit out at the Fed's messaging around rate hikes, describing the increases in rates as unprecedented. Becker cited a social media fueled run on the bank, which triggered a withdrawal of $42 billion in 10 hours on the 9th of March, or around $1 million every second. Uh, Chicago Fed President uh, Austin Goldsby has called for a, quote, prudent approach to monetary policy, telling CNBC the inflation picture is improving, but not quickly enough. Goldsby added the impact from higher rates over the last 12 months has still to make its way through the pipeline. Meanwhile, the Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic has cast doubt on cutting rates this year as he outlined his time timeline to CNBC. My baseline case is we won't really be thinking about cutting till well into 2024. Uh, I think what we're going to see is just an orderly decline. I'm hoping that we see what we've seen over the last several months, where inflation has come from a very high level to now it's just a high level. But even if you, if you look at most measures of inflation, um, there's still two times where our target is. And so there's a long distance still to go. So, ladies and gentlemen, good morning to you all again, by the way. I like to give you one idea per day at least so you can have a think and you can disagree heartily with me. That's the whole point of this show, to, to galvanise your opinions either for what we're saying or against. We don't care. We just want to get you to think about the markets. And I want you to think about the data out of the US yesterday. I mean, the markets, we, we've discussed a lot. I mean, the, the Nasdaq, once again, outperforming. Uh, I will tell you that Nasdaq, so far this year, has put on 19%. The S&P's... Still pretty respectable, up 8.1%. So what a massive outperformance for those bouncing technology stocks. But that's not the idea I want to talk to you about. It's about data. Now, I know you're all looking at the retail sales data due out of the United States, looking for a, a jump in Mar April after the decline in March as well. But that's not even the data I want to talk about. It, it's a piece of data that you may or may not have had a look at. But I want you to look at what happened out of the Empire Manufacturing yesterday, the, the New York Fed's general business conditions. And I'll just spend a little bit of time on this one. We can look at the treasuries and the dollar while I do this as well. So we'll move on to the treasuries. But the New York Fed's, and I'll just read you the line here. New York Fed's general business conditions plunged 42.6 points. Now, say what you'd like about individual piece of data, and you're absolutely right not to focus on individual piece of data. But if you are to look at the data-driven nature of this market, you're all still worried about your interest rates and inflation. But how much now do we need to look at recession? The New York Fed's General Business Conditions Index for the Regional Manufacturing Survey for May plunged, as I say, 42.6 points to negative 31.8, falling deeply, as you can see, into negative territory. It is the biggest month-to-month -month decline since April 2020. Now, I don't need to go into a huge amount of detail with you about this. Just safe to say that is the biggest month-to-month -month decline since the peak of the crisis first time round because of COVID. Massive deterioration in new orders and massive deterioration in shipments. Just have a think about it. I don't need to lead you down a path. Just have a think about that piece of data. I'm going to a bit more detail on it if you think it's interesting. I certainly do. Uh, look at the dollar crosses anyway. Let's have a look at this. And I know you're focused on the debt ceiling. I know you're focused on retail sales. Absolutely rightly so. But just take a look at some of this other data. 
125 on the pound, 108.76 on the euro dollar, dollar yen 135.98. So once again, the yen remains under pressure, doesn't it? Uh, dollar yuan 6.96. Should we have a look at the commodity space? I mean, wow, how fascinating WTI and Brent is at the moment, really. So we were, we were below 70 bucks on WTI, like literally, I don't know, 36 hours ago. Now we're back up to 71.36. Brent finding a bit of form up to 75.52. There is a battle royale going on uh, in that commodity space at the moment. The gold giving back a little bit of ground from its uh, recent highs, uh, just above $2,000 a troy ounce. Should we have a look at Asian markets? Yes, we shall, you say. Yes, we shall, in unison. Uh, and uh, the Shanghai Composite and the Hang Seng uh, are flat. Again, underwhelming data out of China. It was positive, but it wasn't quite what we'd hoped for, was it? Uh, and the ASX 200 is down four tenths of 1%. Uh, I will tell you this, though, that materials, well, I always think of materials when I see the ASX 200, were well, actually the best performing sector in the US, up nine tenths of 1%. Utilities were the worst performing sector, down 1.2%. Uh, Karen Cho, take it away. And coming up on the show, we're going to talk about the shifting sands in gaming. A deal divided EU regulators have broken with their UK counterparts on Microsoft's proposed takeover of Activision. We'll discuss the latest next. And for more on China's uneven recovery, as well as where the biggest money managers are putting their cash, check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The European Union has approved Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard. This breaking with the UK, which blocked the deal last month. EU regulators accepted Microsoft's remedies on cloud gaming, which British regulators deemed insufficient over antitrust concerns. Our colleague Sylvia spoke with EU's uh, Commissioner for Competition, Margaret Vestiga, in Brussels following the decision and asked her why the bloc took a different view than their UK counterparts. We had a concern about cloud gaming, very nascent right now, but it will yeah. grow. And uh, we saw that none of the games that we're talking about here of uh, Activision Blizzard would be available. And that, of course, would be a concern. We were given a remedy. Uh, so a 10-year uh, license uh, for, for free for existing and, and coming games now to be made available. So we think that this is not only sort of solving a problem, it's also pro-competitive. And, and that for us is a good thing. So that was enough to convince you on this one? Uh, well, it, it was enough, yes, uh, because this is not about uh, different procedures or a different sort of uh, uh, legal uh, bar that you have to climb. Uh, this is about a competition concern being solved so that a merger can go on. Is this perhaps a new phase in the regulatory work of the Commission, where the Commission is becoming perhaps a little less strict? No, it is not. Uh, had we found a concern also, now as said, uh, cloud gaming is 1-3% to 3%, uh, of the gaming market, so it's a small market. But had we found that a concern could not be solved, well, then the merger could not go ahead. And, and that will go, of course, in, in any other merger. 
Let me ask you about perhaps contacts you've had with your colleagues stateside. Have you had any sort of coordination when it came to this deal with FTC? Do you expect them to decide in a similar way to yours? Well, that I uh, I don't know. Uh, we're coordinating uh, quite closely on the substance, uh, as we have done with uh, with the CMA of the United Kingdom. Uh, so, of course, we, we know each other. We have been discussing theories of harm, to some degree uh, aligned. Now we have different uh, outcomes, but this is not something that comes between us uh, as uh, jurisdictions and as law enforcers. And just finally, what's your message to other regulators out there, to your colleagues out there when it comes to this deal in specific? Well, we have no messages to one another. If we need messaging, then we just, you know, grab the phone and make a call. Uh, here, this is merger-specific. Uh, we think that we have a good solution, solves the problems, and works pro-competitive since now a lot more games will be available uh, in cloud streaming. Arjun joins us with more. Arjun, this is somewhat upside down. The EU not seen as the easiest regulator, but it's now given this deal the green light. But the Americans and the British are saying no to the deal and fairly strong remedies being demanded here in the UK, particularly the what, the sale of the Call of Duty franchise to get this across the line. Yeah, it was, it was somewhat of a surprise given the, the track record of the EU in recent years towards big tech, seeing uh, them as perhaps too powerful, not really wanting some of these mega mergers to go through, but, but agreeing it on the grounds that Microsoft offer uh, effectively free licenses to other cloud game streaming platforms in the EU to effectively stream any Activision games uh, that are that come out or that consumers have even purchased uh, now. So it's one that relies on monitoring of what Microsoft actions are, uh, but it's one that really targets what is a nascent market, cloud gaming, one to two percent of the overall game market at this point. You can see it almost as a Netflix style of gaming where effectively you, you can just stream games rather than having expensive console hardware, having to buy just individual games at a time. Uh, it's, a, it's an early market, but it's one that Microsoft's very much staked the future of its gaming business to. Uh, and so that's why it's uh, come into the view so much of the regulators in the UK and the EU as well. Uh, uh, but, but clearly the remedies here for Microsoft uh, for the EU were satisfactory. Interestingly, they offered the UK the same remedies. They said, look, we'll offer free licenses, we'll give 10-year de deals out to rivals of ours to stream these Activision games. But the UK had an issue with it saying it was hard to enforce, that it wouldn't account for the changing nature of the gaming of the clown gaming market given that it was too young and effectively would end up stifling competition in the end so two very different views at this point from the regulators if we consider where the u.s is at uh, obviously one of the other big regulators in the room here it looks as though they are staring backwards and decisions and uh, sort of operating practices of microsoft in the past with other games that is influencing their decision now that they believe content has been withheld in the past from various consoles that seems quite different into the EU decision now where Microsoft seems to be pivoting towards the value is in content, it's in software, not necessarily in hardware. So how do they get around the US regulatory issue? Yeah, well, Microsoft has very much fallen uh, as the third place in the console uh, wars over the last few years. Nintendo and Sony very much taken the lead. So you've seen Microsoft say, well, look, 
you know, we've tried our best with Xbox in the console market, but actually uh, our future really relies on this software model, this SaaS model with, with these games. Uh, I think uh, you're right. Uh, the regulators are looking at Microsoft's track record at the moment, saying, well, in the past you've done this. I think Microsoft has sort of in recent years changed the way it thinks about its own content at this point. It does know that the value for Microsoft is not in owning the, the hardware or these individual sort of platforms, but actually being able to spread uh, its software across multiple platforms. You've seen that with Windows and some of those Windows products as well. Uh, and I think it's a similar sort of aspect here with games. So I think that's one sort of uh, thing that goes in uh, their advantage. The US, look, this deal is very far still uh, from crossing the line. The UK, of course, has moved to block the deal. The FTC, under the leadership of Lena Khan, has uh, known to be very anti-big tech, anti these huge mega mergers as well. So a long, long way to go. Uh, the FTC and Microsoft will sort of fight it out in court in August uh, to see where this goes. So it's really long way to go yet for Microsoft in this Inside deal. Inside knowledge here, I mean, there is one man that we've all seen on the circuit over here in recent years, and that would be Brad Smith. And mm. I wonder how much he's had to do with this decision, you know, up close with a lot of regulators, understanding the European position. I mean, he's at every major European conference, pretty much, if there is a, a tech handle to it. I do wonder whether those learnings have been instrumental in this process. He's been very involved, uh, you know, was in Brussels early this year when he was there speaking to the EU specifically about this deal. Uh, and shortly after that, they announced uh, a deal with NVIDIA uh, to say, well, we're going to put all our Activision games for the next 10 years on NVIDIA's cloud gaming platform. That was the olive branch. And I think that gave us a signal uh, as to the way that Microsoft was going to approach this in terms of appeasing the regulators. Arjun, thank you very much for uh, walking us through the latest there around the story. And for more on the EU's latest decision and what comes next, be sure to check out cnbc.com. And on a programming note, Andrew Ross Sorkin will be sitting down exclusively with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella uh, to discuss AI and that deal. You can catch highlights on Squawkbox in the US or for any night owls out there. The full interview will be streamed on NBC News now at 4.30 CET on Wednesday. And another interview for our late night viewers. CNBC will sit down with Elon Musk after Tesla's annual meeting in Austin, Texas. You can catch that special presentation live at midnight uh, CET on um, Wednesday. Was there a story about Mr. Musk meeting? Oh, hang on. That, that, that's the next story. Sorry, I sh there's another story about the next story. You, you read the official you're, you're running ahead of the news here. No, no, but uh, you, uh, there's the another... Tesla, the Tesla CEO has been in Paris meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron at the, quote, Choose France summit. Musk said the EV company would make, quote, significant investments in France in the future, but would not be making any announcements at the event. Musk also dined with the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire, who pitched the CEO on new French tax credits for investments in green technologies. Le Maire said all the discussions with global business leaders show France's long-term commitment to economic development. All of the investments announced today are the result of months or years of negotiations. A multi-billion euro investment doesn't happen because a CEO comes to Versailles, says it looks nice here and then forks out 2 billion euros. That's not how it works. It comes from months and years of negotiations. <clears throat> so sorry I jumped ahead, but I'm so Go excited on. about the other version of that meeting. Mm. So you just read about Musk meeting Macron um, at this French event, and yeah? Bruno Le Maire. And Bruno yeah. Le Maire. Yeah. So the Daily Telegraph here in the UK, this is uh, their story, nothing to do with me, but I'll reiterate. Uh, I had to sleep in the car, in inverted commas. Unshaven Elon Musk jets into meeting with Macron after night of clubbing. 
this is the story. A dishevelled Elon Musk joked that he had slept in the car, joked that he had, before a meeting with the French president. Hours after the billionaire was seen parting in Mexico and Las Vegas. Oh, Los Angeles, a big problem. Um, Musk said he hoped Tesla would make a significant investment in France in future after... Uh, The Tesla chief, who usually dresses in jeans and T-shirt, donned a suit for the 45-minute meeting with the French president, but was unshaven. Mr. Musk was caught on camera telling Macron he had to sleep in the car. There's plenty of good five-star hotels in Paris. Is your saying? Is one I'm sure you... Right. I know the check-in rules can be somewhat brutal sometimes, you know, after midday or a little bit later, maybe at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you'd think so. You'd think they'd be enough cash. But does this signal that he wants to go into a new area of the market (laughs) that we should share with our viewers you've been quite interested in? Motorhomes? Not me. You know, maybe he's thinking about you know an expansion in a vehicle <laughs> market that is a slightly bigger format that if you can I, sleep um, in your car. I, I, I don't understand the story. I mean, if if he flies in in his own jet, he can stay in his own jet. There's no reason for him to kip in the car. Yeah, it sounds he, to me that there's a little bit of license being taken with this story. The, the other story, did you see that um, he now wants to take personal individual responsibility for every hiring at Tesla? going forward, which doesn't necessarily suggest good things about cost management at Tesla at the moment. That's interesting. Um, And when you show that video, I don't know if we can show that again, does he look like a man who's been up all night? I have to say, he does look a little weary in the pictures there, doesn't he? But maybe that's the call of duty, the time he's spent working on uh, business deals. But I've always always said, look, if you can party and do a full day's work the next day, then good luck to you. But if you party and your work suffers, then I get... I had a producer once. I'm not going to name names. I was on an outside broadcast. Arjun's still with us. I was on an outside broadcast. uh, And dare I say, it was in... I'll say where I was. It was in Vienna. Now, this person has got a brilliant brain, this producer of mine. But she said to me, she said, do you mind if I go to the ball? We're in Vienna and there was a ball. There's always a ball in Vienna. She said, do you mind if I go to the ball? I said, look, do what you like, but we'll be starting here at 5 a.m. the next morning outside OPEC Secretariat. Anyway, she turns up and she was absolutely hungover and, and exhausted. And again, I'm telling you, this person has got a brilliant brain. You might remember who it is off on the quiet. Uh, and I was like, the whole day I just had to do everything, you know, run around doing all the production stuff as well, because this brilliant brain of a person clearly couldn't do the partying and the work at OPEC the next day. Yeah, we so, all know, work hard, play hard. You've got to do both. If you can, if you can, I can't. You know I can't. You know I'm absolutely rubbish at partying and then working. Others, I think all of you on this desk are quite good at that. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a great mix, is it, really? Uh, if you can do it, yeah. good luck to you, I say. I think at least yeah. if you're going to shave before you go out so oh, well. that you're ready for the next morning, that's what Elon Musk should ahead. maybe have learned. He's, used to, he's good at multitasking, old Musk. Let's be honest about it. What's he got? SpaceX, Tesla, Twitter. On this story, <laughs> was this planted in some way to just, you know, it, it enhance his image uh, as being maybe. a play-hard, you know, work-hard? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.